Welcome to episode 8 of the Executives in Wealth Management podcast. Today we're joined by Sundra Apavu, CEO of Craven Street Capital, a corporate finance business who commenced a buy and build strategy in the financial planning market. Today, Craven Street Wealth is a regional player with over 1.2 billion assets under management. In this conversation, we discuss why the financial planning market is attractive to the corporate finance space, how the best leaders recognize the value of the team around them, and Sundra shares a couple of insights into how to get the right exit for you and your business. So, Sundra, we've um, thank you for uh, agreeing to join us for uh, the Executives in Wealth Management podcast. It's you're very welcome. You here? Yeah. How are you today? I'm extremely well. Yeah. So uh, I didn't get rained on. There was uh, a flood when I got home last night. So uh, let's see what there is tonight. At home. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was like proper, proper flooding. Um, not in the house, but uh, oh. outside our field. But there you go. Yeah. So, uh, what was the storm called? Listeners won't know the exact day we're talking about, will they? But has it stormed nowhere or something? I, I, don't, I don't know actually. I haven't. But in London, there haven't been anything. It's been like a few spots of uh, drizzle. But suddenly, I get home and there's um, there's well, not quite cars being washed down the road, but it was pretty bad. So I don't know what the name of the uh, of the storm is. A uh, post Easter beginning yeah. of summer some storm. Setting us up for another sunny year, as always. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but okay, so so the purpose of the podcast, Sundra, um, we're interested in Sundra. You know, I think your role uh, with Craven Street Capital and chairman of Craven Street Wealth is is super interesting, and no doubt the the conversation will cover you know, the business, what you're doing and how you're doing it. But really, we're interested in your learnings, your experiences and how you've got to the position that you're in. And particularly, you know, and we've discussed this already you know, mm. off, off air, if you like, Sundra, mm. you know, you're not yeah. necessarily a, a typical wealth management uh, guest that we would have yeah. on the podcast. So, you know, super interested to get your slightly different appreciation yeah. uh, or left field perspective, if you like, of, of the wealth space. So, um yeah, so what we normally do, Sundra, is mm-hmm. kick off by just trying to understand, I guess you as a young person, your your yeah. formative years and the influences on you, you know, as you developed or grew up, if you like, that made Sundra who he yeah. is today. So in, in yeah. a few minutes, could you kind of describe your uh, upbringing? And, so, yeah, I grew up, um, I grew up in uh, a village in uh, Yorkshire uh, called Honley, which is uh, uh, near to Huddersfield. Uh, in between Huddersfield and Home Firth, which is the sort of last of the summer wine uh, country. Um, yeah, so more last of the summer wine than Happy Valley, but, you know, <laughs> just, uh, a, a Yorkshire, uh, Yorkshire village. Um, really nice, lovely place to grow up. Um, uh, sort of middle class family. My dad was a, uh, was a university lecturer um so it's that um what was the way of putting it um not quite bohemian because my dad wasn't particularly bohemian but you know kind of um booky but uh not particularly uh wealthy uh kind of background so i went to the local comprehensive but um uh i had uh, i guess a uh analytical um uh, bent when I was uh, when I was younger, which I guess is something that's that's carried on. So I was a um, I think I woke up one day when I was 10, 11 and thought I was going to become a, a biochemist. Uh, so okay. I went to biochemistry at uh, at, at Oxford. Um, but you know, what's the way of putting it? I was a um, I was very much your science nerd growing up. Um, uh, biochemistry, but also train spotting, and there was a lot to do in Huddersfield uh, in 1983 uh, to 1988. <laughs> um, uh, it, it seems even it isn't just a film. People actually did go and look at, uh, at trains. Um, uh, I mean, I, I went to Oxford had a fantastic time. Um, did a lot of sport there. Did. Um, uh, really enjoyed it. I think came to the conclusion I still like doing analytical stuff, but I wanted to go into finance. So I trained as an accountant um, and uh, and went into the into the city 
uh, well, so I trained as an accountant with Arthur Anson, went into corporate finance there, and then went into corporate finance um, in uh, in first Hambros and then uh, then UBS uh, Warburg. So, I, I guess the the first part of my career is um, uh, it, it, you know very much following a. Um, uh, a path from being, I guess, scientific uh, analysis, but you know, on to being uh, financial analysis. Um, it you know can seem like it's a big step from one to the other, but actually, I don't think it is that much of a step. It's a lot of people who uh, who do numbers who are uh, have got a scientific background. I think that's something that's uh, uh, a useful. Uh, it's a useful background when you're actually looking at stuff. It's about you know, kind of having a. Um, an emotional, rigorous approach to looking at stuff. I hope there's a little bit of that left. Um, uh, and the same is true, you know, with the council qualification. You know, it's a, it's uh, what uh, the, it is the um, well, in many senses, it's the way of leaving university and, uh, and, and getting a job in town, which was a big part of uh, why I went into accountancy. But also, it's a good training thing to yeah. do if you know you kind of want to work at order and finance you don't know what it is um and I, it is a great training for that um but uh, uh I like i liked the idea of doing deals and i like doing deals so you know i've kind of spent most of my career after that first uh, bit in one sense or another i guess it comes back into that, that um thing i suspect we'll come back to which is um uh, my uh, my background isn't as a wealth manager. My my background is as a deal doer. I am a yeah. You know, I I'm a corporate finance advisor. I guess the vast bulk of my almost thirty years um, in uh, in work has been as a corporate finance advisor. So it's it's probably twenty five years of that. So of one form or another, and, um, and but I think you know if you. You start right from the beginning of a little bit of the the science nerd um, in in Huddersfield through to, to this. It's it's all the same stuff. It's look it, finding detail quite interesting, and I think that that's that's a bit about what what you know you have to do in any transaction. But it's also true about building a business as well. So um, come on to sort of why why moving into wealth management and stuff. But I mean at, at the core of it. You know, I like doing deals and I like doing deals because I like kind of thinking about how to structure things and um, and about making them into, uh, you know, getting an answer. Yeah. Okay. So uh, you use the term unemotional and, and yeah. vigorous. That's quite a, quite a specific phrase that. Um, yeah. Can we talk about data, that? Data-led. Yeah. <coughs> what does that mean to you? Level and data. Well, look. Yeah, nobody does anything in business because they don't enjoy it. It doesn't mean um, being unemotional about what the data says isn't the same yeah, as being exactly. emotional about yeah, yeah. the drive. You know, you've got to have ambition for things. You've got to be enthusiastic. I'm by my nature a, I guess, a can-do person and a quite positive person. I want to want to do stuff that grows. I've got plans. Uh, you know. That you, that you you create an exit. Being, <laughs> there are a lot easier ways to make a living than being an entrepreneurial business builder. So you yes. know, it, it you wouldn't do it if you weren't in some sense enthusiastic about it or emotional about it. But um, I mean, come on to the approach that we've taken here, which is um, the thing about being a corporate finance advisor. You've got to do a little bit of that mix and match between. Um, <laughs> Infusing clients to do deals because you know the um, the default option is not to do anything. So the def- default option in any um, uh, so you're not selling petrol. The default option when you're driving a car is you need to fill with petrol. You might fill here or you might fill there, but in the end you need to buy petrol. So it, the default option with corporate finance is different. It's the default option is you don't do any deal. You've got a business that functions. You did, don't need to sell it. You don't need to buy another. You don't need to yeah. finance. You don't need to do anything. It just works. And there's businesses that have worked for a very long time without re-engaging with corporate finance advisors. So you know, inherently, you've got to be a bit of a sales guy. You've got to have a vision. You've got to be. You have actually got to be emotional. But equally, particularly if you're advising businesses, most of my career has been advising businesses in financial services. They've all got 
comp finance guys. Everybody does numbers, you know. So everybody understands. Um, everybody understands kind of what they're looking for out of taking a risk and doing something. So you've got to persuade people a little bit emotionally, but mostly you've got to just really try and disaggregate um, what's the narrative, what's the reason, what's the uh, what are the risks, what are the uh, rewards, and you know how, how is it going to play through? What are the different scenarios? So. Um, Actually, being a corporate finance advisor, hopefully, is, a, is something that's a good way to then get into, you know, building up businesses because you've got to you you've got to kind of mix that quite an emotional set of desires and drives and everything, but together with a, I think, a quite rigorous um, uh, analysis to go with it. One doesn't work without the other. Yeah, I can imagine. Okay, and if we. We'll move, I suppose, relatively quickly through to your time when you were very heavily involved in the wealth space. Yeah. You know, in the more recent, in the more recent years, and our definition of wealth management, because there's lots of facets of it. Yeah, yeah, really interested in the private client space. Um, but I am particularly interested in your time um, around. I don't remember exactly which business you were working for at the time, but around the sort of 2008 financial crisis, was it Warburg's or? So no, no, no. I left and I actually joined. What was after um, what became the parent company, uh, or what became then Correct Street Capital, yeah. which was the Southall Group. Okay. Uh, so I had um, I'd gone back to Oxford, done an MBA, uh, and <clears throat> come out and joined um, Southall Group, and in a kind of circuitous route, ended up uh, running a fund of hedge fund business, which we grew and got sold to uh, Close Brothers, actually. Um, and then set up the business that became Craven Street Capital at the end of 2006. We really got started in 2007 right. um, as a, originally a sort of a fund advisory and corporate finance business. But uh, we ended up listing a, a fund with a, in a joint venture with a, a US hedge fund that was investing in US market cap. Uh, debt now um <laughs> going into 2008 with a joint venture with a u.s hedge fund investing in u.s microcap debt yeah. was i might add a pretty complicated situation and it, and it was a, it was you know getting through uh, five very painful years of just working something through trying to do the right thing for the shareholders of it and um was was pretty hard uh, work uh, paying off a, a a bank line with uh, Bank Scotland and then you know putting it into administration. That was a, a tough old process. And as a business, we kind of had to pivot to becoming a um, doing more corporate finance and less fund advisory through that process. Um, actually, originally partly for. Um, uh, businesses were in the portfolio of the uh, of the fund, but also for our parent company, which is Punsalthall. And Punsalthall themselves, a very multi-headed um, financial services business, originally an actuarial business. And um, they went through a period of becoming a very ambitious group. They'd always been an ambitious group. They'd grown a lot of businesses, but now they were at scales, sort of 2012-ish, where they had quite a few very, very mature businesses they were wanting to, and they had access to capital. So they went through a, um, a, a growth, a buy and build, but also a uh, spinning out, selling, floating. So we went through a, a really positive period, actually, uh, pivoting to uh, sort of being their in-house corporate finance business. We floated off, uh, we did some mergers, we did some acquisitions, we sold off uh, an asset management business. So through that, uh, and through doing work for outside clients, we kind of got exposure, which kind of then leads to um, nothing doesn't lead, nothing leads to nothing. I guess a lot of things can lead to nothing, but it, it, but actually, hopefully, you're trying to learn from something, and and so that needing to pivot back to doing corporate finance led us down this journey of actually a really um, positive partnership with uh, with Southall Group, although we they were our parent company, we were kind of on a, a bit of a, a niche path, um, and. Um, I advise on deals in 
the DFM space, in the IFA space, in the fund management space, in the investment consulting space, in mm. the platform space, in the um, third party administration space. So uh, in various technology pieces within that. Uh, so um, also insurance and lots of other different parts of financial services, but okay, that's all actuarial. But, you know, kind of we've got a real spread throughout the, it's a bit of a maze, the, the financial services sector, and, and actually understanding how the, all the different bits of pipe work, work is, um, it's always fascinating. And actually uh, getting exposed to all that, you know, I, I, um, I constantly find the financial system interesting. Not because I understand it, because it's incredibly complicated. It's got so many little micro niches, and they've all got their own little uh, idiosyncrasies. Um, but one of the things that came out of that um, is that we had in our heads so a, a, a view that there was an opportunity to buy ourselves out of South or Group. Um, um, and that's what we did in 2017. We carried on as a corporate finance business, but we always had in our mind that we wanted to do for ourselves a lot of what we've been doing for other people, which is um, using our corporate finance skill to build equity value, and in particular in the sectors that we understand. <clears throat> in the, if we looked at the sectors that we did understand, I think that we were struck, I was struck very much by... Um, a number of trends in the sector uh, that happened post RDR, wide back pre RDR, um, you know the landscape looks very different. But post RDR, you know, I, I think the the coming together of a regulatory, you had a, a bunch of things come together. I think that made this sector one of the most interesting sectors in the country for um, building value and, and actually doing the right things, Rob. So um, actually, I'll, I'll just touch on that doing the right thing bit because actually it's one of the real lessons of coming out of being in consultant group. We, we continued to have a really good relationship with them. Um, it, it's one of those businesses that's, you know, it's a, it grew at one point to about a thousand people, but, you know, it's a mid-cap uh, business, but they, was probably the largest actuarial, independent actuarial group at one point as well. Right. They grew a lot of value for their shareholders, but with one key sort of ethos in mind, which I think hopefully you can take forward as a real way of, of, of developing value, which is come up with products, do things for clients that are right. And, and if you get the other stuff, if you get that bit 80% right, and you, you can get the other stuff 60% right and it'll still work because at its core, you know, that's what most businesses are in. So we we kind of had that ethos coming out of the Pansalto group, which is not it's not a woolly thing. It's not a... What, what, what exactly do you mean by get the well, positive? It's, it's, not, it's, not a, it, it's not a come by our thing about, you know, we want to be the nicest people yeah, um, exactly. in, in the world because... Um, or well, maybe I'm nice, but I mean, I'm, we're, not, we're not actually trying. I think you're a nice guy. We're not trying to be nice. We, try, we, we I think that there's um, look, there, there's an ethical part to doing business. You've got to do the right thing, which is an ethical thing. It's an absolute. But I think that there's also a really think about what is it that clients, and this is across the board, this isn't just in wealth management, but wealth management is particularly important because you've got, clients with a degree of vulnerability in corporate finance. It's very easy. You've got clients who are well-informed corporates yeah. or funds. And, you know, to more or less, you know, we're a regulated business, but still, you know, our clients, they've always got a CFO, they've always got a lawyer, they can always, they've always got a board of people who know what they're doing. Uh, in the wealth industry, you've got private individuals who are looking to you, the wealth management company, to do the right thing. But I don't think that the principles are that different, which is if you are look, if you try and understand actually what your clients need, if you are trying to um, set up a business to actually deliver exactly that, and if you're thinking about actually how the industry is changing and try and deliver as good value for the clients as possible, then you know, the business uh, at Health Float a few years ago um, at River Mercantile, they were really based around a really novel look at how pension schemes 
managed their money. It's a fantastic business, grew really well and, and, and became River Mercantile, then flowed and then sold to Shrooms. But you know, you create that value by actually starting with that core principle. And the same is true in another business we, we helped float a few years ago, Nucleus, the um mm. Uh, the advisor platform started off with this kind of core thought of how do we really address what what advisors need from a platform and what their clients need from a platform to build it and, and I think hopefully it's taking that learning into into this and coming into wealth manager it's very simple isn't it you want to have products that generate it for most clients most of the time it's about um, having a uh, access to their money, achieving their financial goals, uh, actually reducing the total cost burden of the products that they're investing in, yeah. uh, having access to advisors who know what they're talking about, are well qualified, who understand the tax changes around, who understand the financial environment. It is, um, it's having that you know, systematic approach to, um, to engaging with clients and to... Uh, and to creating business that's good to work for. That's, that's so. I, I think it's um, again, like I said, I, I don't think it's a come by our approach. I think it's a um, it's rigorously thinking about how do you address client needs, particularly in this industry, the private client uh, need. What are the bits that they and I and I think that there, look, there are multiple ways to do it. If you were, when we were thinking about entering into this market, we we were very much of the view that this is. Increasing and the technology has changed it, and an advisor-led industry, or rather, the growth is, and we think the most attractive bit of the market is in the advisor-led bit of it. And the reason, um, what, what exactly do you mean by that, Sindra? Advisor-led, as in the not necessarily IFA, but the financial planner. Yeah, the financial relationship planner, manager. Yeah. Relationship manager, however you're going to call mm. it. Yeah. We think that at its at its core, everything else isn't commoditized, or isn't. But there is a degree of commoditization possible in the rest of it. Not necessarily in some bits that can't be. Um, I mean, depending on what the investment product is. But for a lot of investment options, for a lot of people, particularly in the mid market, it, it, it is about the value is driven by actually a really good advisor who really gets on well with their clients. So we wanted to find, we, we had a real, uh, our thesis was, I was going to say, we had a confusion. We, uh, we, our thesis was that this is a great industry. It's got secular growth. <clears throat> it's an industry we know, we like, we've got good understanding of, we've done plenty of deals in, we've kind of seen all the bits of the value chain. We really wanted to narrow down and focus on um, the wealth, the, that part of wealth which is advisor led yep. where you know it is businesses that have got the direct client relationship we think that that's where the real stickiness comes from uh, and it's where you've got a number of trends as well which is the professionalization of the industry you know we and again everybody brings their own um biases to how you set up a business but we come from professional services background you know corporate finance yeah, but who was working within a, uh, a large actuarial firm and, and it, I come from the bias of I think that professionalization is a is a good way forward so we always mm -hmm. had in our head that we wanted to focus on the chartered uh, financial planning uh, part of the market in 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 very simple terms Sundra most people that listen to this podcast will be advisors or managers yeah. or, or people within the, the traditional financial planning and yeah. investment management space yeah. yeah can you can you in 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 a minute or so just very clearly articulate the difference in your thinking and your approach when you're in your seat yeah when you're private equity funded and i guess have a pot of money to spend and will the value will come back to you when you sell and exit because you put some money in and, and yeah. the difference between going through a similar strategy financing debt because it's very different isn't it yeah I, th I think you know it's i can only um i guess being less generic and more just about our version yeah. of this is I, I think it does um it it it, it does create a 
a constraint. It, it means we need to um, we need to find businesses that are cash flowing. So we can't. Um, we're not going to invest in a new platform. And so you know we're we're not going to buy spend three years building a, a platform. We're not going to spend three years building a new team. Um, we're going to uh, cautiously uh, look at uh, um, buying it, businesses that are that are functioning. But that has got a there's a you know there is a really good uh discipline to that approach and actually it's been attractive for sellers as well it's not it's not been a secret to anybody we're speaking to how we finance um because we're buying businesses that function and we have to find a way to integrate them into what we're doing it means that um although we are a consolidator in the sense that we are buying businesses and, and we are consolidating what we do we're not consolidating sense that we have got a fixed menu of what we will, what it will look like and you either go into that or you don't what it means is we're going to buy it for the next three four five acquisitions we do they will be meaningful in size compared to how big we are every time we do it it makes a difference to us makes a difference to our approach every single deal is strategically important and you know and actually, if you add together all of those differences, it means that when we're speaking to a uh, a seller, they know that well, hopefully, first of all, there's a core proposition that they feel comfortable with, and an approach that they feel comfortable with in terms of, you know, it's partly because it's not vertical integration, and it's you know, we've got an approach. There's a central investment proposition that actually we've go through an outsourced relationship but do that don't do that and that's not the core of what the thing is what we want to do is integrate you into our business but in a gentle way and 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 keep your team keep the people who are good in there keep all of your clients we're not we're not looking we, we haven't got an algorithm we've got lots of algorithms obviously that's all you're assigned isn't it Very but we, yeah. we we haven't got an algorithm that says we're going to lose x percent of the client bank by, and we're going to fire all of your staff and we're going to end up with x there's we're buying a business it's going to be same clients being serviced by the same advisors in the same locations and in trying to do the right thing for your client base hopefully finding some cost savings for your clients in in, in the process rather than the other way around what is it like uh, leading that relationship with a source of funds, whether that be private equity or or Shawbrook, yeah. you know, how do you how do you manage that relationship? Uh, well, I think it's um, it helps that we've hit the numbers, so you know that's a a, a start. Uh, there's uh, always been a, a positive engagement with them. Um, we uh, last time we. Um, Every time that we we have a conversation with them, we're pretty upfront with them about what the um, you know what the challenges that we've got are, what we're looking to sort out. Um, but they they back our process. Look, we 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 went into a relationship. I mean, they've been great actually, um, and we've been incredibly um, uh, impressed by how. Um, consistent they've been how they, you know even when even even when uh, everything is basically going to plan in um in anything where you're growing you know at the uh, at the rate that we're growing in, there's good there's a, there's a few creeks at the edges at some point in time and you've just got to have you've got to have, uh, a people that you trust so i think what we've tried to do is um take our uh, our best corporate finance kind of uh, tool set and make sure that they understand in every single dimension what we're doing, what we're looking to do, how what that's going to turn into in terms of performing numbers. But but I think the engagement with them has been uh, one of they trust us and we we pretty much done so. You know we've 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 also got an institutional shareholder that Pun South have still got a sixteen percent stake in our business, yeah. and they've continued to be very supportive of what we're doing. They're very strategically supportive of what we're doing, and they understand this set. So, yeah, I think it's uh, we're used to, um, but it's our day job. I, mean, I, uh, I deal with 
the boards of companies all the time and um, not just on our own account, you know. So I think probably it's a long-winded way of getting to the answer, which is we treat them as if they are, you know, professional investors like anybody else. And we, we try and give a really um, as much meaningful data about what we're doing, what we're going to do, uh, and hopefully they can always, you know, nothing comes as a surprise and we try and headline that all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some things do come as a surprise. The Ukraine war last year came yeah. as bloody surprise. It was, you know, we were hopeful for it, but, you know, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's hopefully washed through and the numbers are back to being kind of the AUMs uh, dipped and then went back up and you live through these things. Yeah, exactly. So I'm going to kind of stop for a moment and not necessarily yeah. talk about Craven yeah. Street wealth. Yeah. Although I think the point is relevant. And if you yeah. look at your career as a whole and the businesses yeah. that you've been involved in, yeah. you know, I, I suppose that you, you know, add strategic <coughs> input to the, the various boards across the various different businesses yeah. that you've been exposed to over the year years. What do you think? And it's a big broad statement, Sundra, and appreciate context is important, but you know, what is it in your mind that makes a or what do you look for when you're augmenting or building a board or a a leadership team within a scaling business and Craven Street always the wrong, always the wrong thing uh, <laughs> I don't know no, you, 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 I think that you do I, I think that the number one thing I've uh, seen and you kind of see it in lots of different ways and it is there, there are nice ways of putting it and there are nice ways of putting it but people who recognise that they need to be in a team you know, this, and and actually, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how big your or small your business is. Actually, you're always relying on other people. Whether it's so, you ask about the relationship with the bank. That's a good example of it. Or relationship with you know, potential other funders. That's a good example of it. Or when you're buying businesses, it's a good example of it. You've just got to. There's no lever. I I, I look at you know. Um, fruitlessly on my table for the button that says do this there is no button in any industry but definitely not in financial services and definitely not not in core finance not in financial services not in any of these things where you press a button and people do what you tell them you've got to persuade you've always got to persuade so i think it's if there's one lesson where building a team or building anything is no man is an island um which uh sound like a good start to a poem but um but it's true no man is in ireland you you've got to bring other people with you and uh, which makes coming back to all those things i was talking about before it's a bit of a bit of having ambitious uh vision but it's also about you know persuading people analytically yeah and do you tend to approach those conversations you know with unemotional raw data that backs up you know this is why we need to do it or are you kind of the softer you know selly selly type person soon oh, a bit of both, bit of both. <laughs> yeah. listen this thing about being in financial services everybody's got a spreadsheet so uh yeah. everybody's got a partial spreadsheet that uh presents their view of it um a, 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 a bit of both i mean well <laughs> i am very much a back of the envelope numbers uh person rather than uh, spreadsheet or well, I do do lots of spreadsheets as well but if I can't pers- persuade myself on, on, on a uh, a back of the envelope then uh, it's it's probably not the right thing to do okay that's interesting okay yeah, nothing nothing in finance is so complicated that you can't explain it on a piece of paper and if you can't explain it on a piece of paper you don't understand it okay so let's let's talk about the numbers then. So let's say I'm a I'm listening to this and I'm the director yeah. of a, a mid-sized IFA, six hundred, yeah. seven hundred million. That's probably about yeah. average, isn't it? Twenty-five yeah. to forty yeah. staff. Um, I'm thinking about my exit, which is not going to happen for a couple of years. So we've got some time yeah. to augment the business, develop, etc. You know, you're a man who I quote knows his numbers. You know, where yeah. would you be looking to? build out your business or develop your business or what would you what would what shape would you want the business to look like for that event to be attractive to to someone like you well i, I think 
the number one thing that uh, businesses do need to think of is um, is really the succession planning aspect of it. Um, I think uh, there's obviously two ways to make any of these businesses um, more attractive to a uh, to a consolidator, and some of the things that you just can't deal with there's some very simple presentation things which is just make sure that you've got your cost base correct a lot of businesses inherit costs that actually in reality they don't need so there's there's a simple bit that's the sort of the corporate finance hat on is is just getting it to the right um pro forma p l um it's a lot harder to grow sales and you can't just pro forma sales up they you know they need either go up or they don't um, I think it's also making sure you've really thought about what your proposition is um, and what it is you're looking for from the people that are gonna, you're going to merge with. Because I, I, I think that for a lot of those £600 million uh, firms, you've got, well, you've got hundreds of camps, obviously, but you, uh, broadly you've got two camps. People who've ended up with a hodgepodge of different um platforms, different different relationships, different stuff. They are a collection of advisors who do their own thing and don't have a... We don't really like that kind of a business. Not because we can't deal with lots of different approaches. What we like is one where they've got a clear approach. It might well be that they're on lots of platforms because it made sense for all of those different clients. It may be that they've got lots of different... Again, makes sense but if they've got a single ethos then that's kind of what we like and it makes it easier then to integrate it and we're not going to be the firm for everybody you can't make yourself into what you're not and you certainly can't in two years you know yeah you can do little bits to clean it up but actually i think it's more about how do you find the firm that you should sell to and uh, finding that firm you should sell to is not necessarily about just what's the highest price. It's about how am I going to securely get the exit? And that's, is there a compatibility of the approach? Because if there's a compatibility of the approach, your clients will stay. Do you believe in it? Do you like it? The, your clients will stay. You'll get your earn out. Your staff will stay there. It will function as a an enlarged business. So I think it's less... Uh, what do you do to get the magic punch? There are things to do. There's definitely PL optimization. You know, I'd be lying if I said that that wasn't something which we don't actively advise lots of people on all the time. Mm. But I think actually, on the assumption that most, when you get to 650 million, yeah, it's well, you know, well on the machine, isn't it? Anyway, yeah. you're kind of in the territory where people know that they're doing stuff professionally. Yeah. Then I think it's a question of actually working out what's the right kind of a deal that they want to do. And, and it might not be with us. It might always it help well be somebody else. And there might be lots of practical reasons for it. Maybe it'll be, you know, the platform, the, uh, the, the back office, whatever it is. So, yeah. it, but in general, back office and platform shouldn't be the thing. I think it's about um, the approach to clients. It's about staff culture. type. It's about the type of this, the culture. It has to be the culture. Yeah. So by the time that this podcast comes out, uh, it's not yeah. been released yet, but there'll be a uh, next week actually from today, there'll be a podcast released with Colin Lawson at Equilibrium, and he describes oh, yeah. um, uh, uh, m- making a mistake when yeah. selling a business is like a bereavement. You know, yeah. you give away something you love for a, a check, and it falls yeah. apart, and there's yeah. that sense of loss, and it's all <laughs> yeah. the, it's all the soft stuff, isn't it? You know, it's money will you know will, will go so far but if the cultural the cultural fit isn't there yeah you still got to see these clients i and, i i, I yeah. think that's undoubtedly true in this space more so than in most because it's a people business um, yeah. and if you're and, and it's not to say that being part of uh, an enlarged firm is always going to be different and is always going to involve change and change is always a bit painful there's no mm. It is inevitably, but equally, if you if you spend the time finding the right answer, then actually it doesn't need to be that painful. Yeah, yeah, I agree. We're so, not looking. We're not look, We are not looking to trick people into selling to us 
on a false premise because that's just a recipe for disaster. Because if you if you do that, it just won't work. So we are looking to when we're doing a deal with a we are doing a deal with a very similarly sized business that you just described. Yeah. Uh, hopefully at the moment. And um certainly won't be done by the time the, the podcast goes out. But um we're, we're trying to be really granular about actually how will people map across how will it work, what you know not just what the financial benefits are, but actually what is the you know, how's it how's this gonna really work for everybody in the yeah. season? Really, really operating Mm. Uh, really get our operating model uh, uh, really get granular on the operating model and on the uh, I guess the ethos of it going forward because that's that needs, like I said you, you, you asked me a question about you know, what difference between a, a debt and a that I don't want to sound um, in any sense like this any private equity backer doesn't take the same level of granular detail as we do it's just it just this is our portfolio this is our portfolio. We are a one investment private equity firm. So we take all of the time in the world to get it right. And we're really careful about it. But but I think, well, like I said, I think we're really optimistic about the future. I think that we've, we've, uh, we feel like we've got a really good um, team. We've got a really good uh, business. Uh, Ukraine wobble out of the way. Hopefully there's no more banks go bankrupt. Um, yeah. But you can't. But we've lived through all of that and business is still thriving. So uh, yeah. fingers crossed. So we'll kind of we'll move to kind of a moment of yeah. whether you say reflection or I yeah. think for you, Sundra, I'm gonna kind of ask you to look forward. Um yeah. and I'm I'm not gonna ask you to look forward of where you want Craven Street wealth to be in five years, but yeah. I think your perspective on the wealth space is yeah. interesting. Yeah. Um if you look forward over the next five to 10 years and you can pick the term, but you know, medium yeah. term onwards, what do you see as the, what do you think will happen within the wealth management space? Do you think it will continue to consolidate at the rates that it is? You know, we're now seeing these super wealth managers with like Investec and Rathbones at hundred billion plus. Um, if you think, think about the, the size of the potential industry, you know, you, you probably got a couple of trillion pounds of, accessible wealth being the the sort of the industry size uh you know is is a hundred billion pounds an unreasonable size for a uh i remember that hundred billion pounds touches a lot of different assets agreed well. yeah uh, agreed it's this but is a hundred billion pounds uh a an unreasonable size of um of managing, not really. It's, there's lots of industries with a lot more client concentration than than that. Uh, equally, um, I don't know if uh, those. This is a very easy industry to have entrepreneurs. It's one of the fun things about it. It's why you've got five thousand IFAs. You've you've always got guys. Uh, that's one of the one of the things I enjoy about this industry is you meet people who've set up their own business and whether or not you're going to buy them or not, they're always interesting. And, you yeah. know, I'm sure you've seen the same thing. They're always interesting people. And the technology actually continues to make it easier for the well-connected, well-qualified advisor to just set up on their own. I know compliance gets harder. I know... Uh, it's a more complicated industry than it used to be. But actually, the platforms make it relatively easy for a plug-and-play for, for quite a lot of advisors and their networks make it exactly. easy. Yeah. There is a, I, I think you've got a, you've, there's a yin and a yang, there's a pull to this. There's a 5,000 firms will not instantly consolidate into three or four even though there's always a push towards it because there's also each advisor is their own business. So what do I think is the trend? I don't think it will look so different in 10 years time. There'll be a lot, there'll be fewer, bigger groups, but there will also be spin-offs. There'll also be failed, um, quite a few banks and quite a few insurance companies who have made a massive cock up and have dissatisfied customers and you know this isn't the first 
this isn't the first rodeo that they've been on and they've cocked it up before. So, uh, and, and they've done a very good job before, but yeah. approaches will be taken that annoy people that will result in entrepreneurial advisors spinning off, taking their client bank and uh, setting up on their own. And it will start again. But so what, what's my general thought? Where will be um, five, 10 years time? Um, uh, I, I, I genuinely think that there will be a lot of continued consolidation. I think that as a market, 5,000 potential targets is a very attractive one. You'll continue to get more US players coming into the or private equity uh, firms coming into this sector. You'll have a lot of those 30 will get eaten up by a lot of the other 30, but another yeah. 30 will appear on, mm. on, on the list. But I... I don't think that that necessarily will change. I think you'll also have continued growth of this uh, sector as well because, you know, there's DB pantry schemes are going to wind up. More money comes into the DC space and into the, I guess, the investable component of the, we still got one and a half trillion pounds that sits in DB pensions over the course of the next, certainly not 10 years, but certainly over the course of the next 50 years, that will reduce by quite a lot. So, you know, it will shift towards a different part of the market. So that creates secular opportunity. So uh, I, I don't think, I, I think the interplay of technology and um, of compliance and of what the FCA does will continue to mean that uh, we get professionalization in it. So I think it, I don't think there's a single trend in terms of the size of firms. I don't think there'll be a single trend in terms of vertical integration. I do think there'll be a single trend in one thing, which is professionalization. So if I had to say that there's one trend I, I do think will happen, it's uh, whether it's chartered financial planning or chartered wealth management or any of those qualifications, that will that that will become as natural to go and see a chartered financial planner as it is to go to a doctor who's got a qualification as opposed yeah. to which nobody goes to a yeah. doctor anymore. Well, yeah. but, you know, it's it's not normal. Uh, I don't think people will see it as being normal to go to an unqualified or a partially qualified wealth manager. That's interesting. Okay, well, we're, we're running out of time, so we'll we'll move across to uh, the quick fire round, yeah. which is uh, the consistent <coughs> point of all of our conversations, Sundra. Yeah. So. If you haven't listened to one of our episodes, I'm sure you have, though, soon, Jeff. Yeah. But if you yeah, haven't, listening to it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, the idea is not to think too much about it. You know, we, yeah. we'll ask you five quick questions and you'll say the first thing that comes yeah. into your head. Are you happy with that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, Sundra. So, in in one word, how would your partner describe you? Oh, uh, Quirky and determined, that's two words. Okay, all right. Uh, who is your idol or role model? Uh, I don't know if I've got a single idol. I'm not a big idol person, but uh, Tony Blair, 20, sorry, 1997 to 2001. I think a perfect example of, yeah, very specific, very, <laughs> very specific. A perfect, uh, the best governed that this country has ever been because somebody thought about what needed to be done and had very narrow, specific, achievable goals. And that's a lesson for everybody in everything. Um, and then moved on to less achievable goals and less specific things, and uh, it got more difficult. But I think that uh, that period of governance actually what, what is one that uh, uh, has got lessons for us all. Okay, and and probably the post that period uh, deviation has got lessons for us all as well. No doubt, that's a different podcast. I think that's you know. that's a very different podcast. It <laughs> yeah. goes on for a long time. Yeah. Uh, what are you currently reading? I am reading uh, "Values, Virtue, and Voice" by Matthew Goodwin, ah. uh, which is uh, a He's a political writer. Actually, he's a political writer from Canterbury, which is where our business is based. Nice. But, uh, but, that's, but that's not why I bought the book. It's a very interesting book. Okay. What's your pet hate, Sundra? Potholes. Potholes. Okay. Is that the <laughs> cyclist in you or is that the driver? 
Okay. Both. Yeah, I know. Uh, tell me about it. Um, right. Okay. So I've never hit a pothole on my bike actually, but I've uh, spent about a thousand pounds on uh, repairing tires over the course of the last nine months. Okay. Well, I have hit a pothole on my bike, and it's not. Much oh, have you? Yeah. Um, so, Signia are going to get the bill. You can take yeah. your family. You can go on your own, yeah. whatever you prefer. Um, you can go on holiday anywhere in the world for a week. Okay, where, where do you yeah. go, Sandra? Oh well, actually, if I could go anywhere, I would. The, the key thing is that I wouldn't go somewhere fancy. I'd go to the Shetland Islands, but I wouldn't ah. go for a week. I'd go for a. The real luxury for me would not be to go, I don't know, I've, I've, I've been very lucky. I've travelled lots of places. I don't know, I've been to almost 60 countries. And um, and I loved everyone. I, I've enjoyed virtually everywhere I've been to. But what I'd really like, and I certainly don't have the time right now, is to spend a very long time going around all of the islands of um, of the British Isles because I think they're great. Uh, so Shetland Islands will be, uh, will be great. Yeah. Yeah, lovely. Okay, well, I think we'll looking we'll at birds and climbing mountains and things like that. Windy, well, well, isn't it? Getting wet. Yeah, yeah. No, we'll leave it there, Sundra. Yeah. Um, right. Thank you for thank you for coming on board and sharing yeah. your you different bad, perspective. I've probably, probably found a really fancy hotel somewhere. Nice. You were fine. Yeah. 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 Don't worry. <laughs> cool. All right. Cheers.